Well, aloha from Maui, Hawaii, and welcome to this week's Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. My name is Michael Benner, and this week we're going to talk about attitude. I did a program maybe a year or so ago. It might have been one that I did with Steve on the premium audio podcast on a focused passion called Attitude of Gratitude. I don't remember if it was focused passion or here, but... I did this program, Attitude of Gratitude. Well, that was a program more about gratitude than attitude. So I thought this week we'd look at the whole idea of attitude because this, I believe, is a um, a point to stand. Uh, who was it that famously said, give me a, a place to stand and a lever and I can move the world? Looking for a place to stand between your sense of yourself as a victim and the responsibility that sets you free, truly free, the liberty that we believe is, if not granted, at least guaranteed by our Constitution, requires us to accept responsibility for the choices we make in our lives, but also for our perspective and our point of view. And if we're busy playing victim and finding some sense of sympathy, perhaps, from from other people in our lives, our friends and family members and associates at work, whomever, um, that's really the only solace or benefit we get from playing victim is a little bit of sympathy from these people. And uh, it's really not worth it. And yet, how do we accept responsibility, not as a matter of self-blame, not as a burden, but as I've suggested, as a, as a liberation, as a freedom, as a freeing of self to the extent that, well, I, I may not be able to control what's happening to me, but I can choose how I look at it and how I respond. And the how I look at it, that middle point between stimulus and response, um, that's what we're talking about today. That's attitude. It's perspective. It's point of view. It's, um, as I say, the middle element between stimulus and response. It's really the meaning between cause and effect. It's a very powerful middle point. This is what I mean by the place to stand. Most people see life only as done to them. Mature people get to a place where they see life as a two-way street, both done to us and coming from us. And we learn then to substitute responses for reflexive reactions. But in order to remember to do that and (laughs) to train yourself to substitute an even-tempered, well-reasoned response for some knee-jerk reaction, to remember to do that, you have to have a place to stand. And that's the middle between cause and effect, between stimulus and response, between what's done to me and... What do I choose to do with it? You've got to have that middle position if you're going to remember that you even have a choice 
in these two areas. Can't control the weather, but we can dress for it. You've heard me say that a bunch of times. Or as the sailor says, I, I, I cannot control the wind, but I can adjust my sails. That's where you find your power. Anytime you feel helpless, victimized, uh, sad, depressed, powerless, um, how do you bootstrap yourself? How do you get back on your feet? How do you even get your feet underneath you and feel like you have some some power and some say-so in your life? It's by taking responsibility not only for the responses, right? We can define responsibility as the ability to choose a response, but it's really more than that. It's also, before you choose the response, the ability to choose your attitude as responsible, as one who is accountable, as one who refuses to blame to hold others responsible for what's happening to you is to give all your power away. Now, if you're going to change what happens to you, you have to change the other person. And maybe they're not here, and maybe they're not changeable. And maybe it's a group of people, and maybe it's not even people, but an event or a circumstance that's causing you to feel helpless and victimized. What are you going to do? How are you going to stand up? by taking a breath and as you exhale remembering oh yeah I have choices what a wonderful attitude say it to yourself now silently or out loud I have choices and what if you remember to remember to say I have choices when you would otherwise find yourself as I say, feeling sad or lonely or victimized or helpless. Uh, depression has a voracious appetite. And depression has a way of holding on to you seemingly. It doesn't really, but it seems to hold on to you. And whispers in your ear saying, I will never go away, I will never leave you, you will always be depressed, and um, a lot of it is just an attitude of victimization and helplessness that that we've been trained to accept, that we've been trained to view our lives from this point of view of helplessness. As I've mentioned many times before, and we all do it from time to time, most people do it far too often, And that's play victim in our conversation, in our small talk with our friends. Much of what passes for conversation is really people trying to outdo each other when it comes to whose life is is worse and who's more miserable. And, uh, you know, people will will get into arguments about, I'm more miserable than you are. Oh, yeah, well, I... uh, I'm way more miserable than you are, right? I'm suffering more than you're suffering. Oh, yeah, well, take this. I can beat your suffering and raise you ten suffering points. And if you listen, 
if you eavesdrop on conversations, if you pay attention, uh, you'll see that tragically that's often what passes for for small talk. And then at the end, it's like, hey, oh gee, I feel so much better. We got to get get together more often. We got to do this more often. <laughs> <laughs> you know, do what? Complain about your funky attitude. So there is some sense of uh, belonging, uh, having something to share, and adopting a negative attitude. But uh, it's not worth it. And And to know that we have a choice to adopt a positive attitude about ourselves and about all things in general is, uh, again, to find a sense of power and responsibility, which I'm arguing today is not a burden. Um, This is not self-blame. Well, Michael says, don't blame other people. I guess i got to blame myself. No, 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 not saying that at all. I'm saying drop the idea of blame. Accepting responsibility is simply saying, I have choices. And that's an attitude. That's that middle position between stimulus, what's happening to you, and response, whether it's well-considered or whether it's just some knee-jerk reflex. If we're going to have ever better considered responses, choosing the best responses to suit ourselves, we also have to choose first this positive attitude and and standing in the middle between what's done to us and what we do with it between the cause and effect in our lives to adapt a positive attitude an overall positive attitude you know life gives you lemons you make lemonade um, every cloud has a silver lining uh, every curse is a blessing in disguise uh, my favorite, all things work together for good. You ever heard that one? A lot of people don't know it. It's, it's found in all manner of uh, religious texts and holy books. It's, it's in the Bible in a bunch of places. It's in the sutras and the Gita and, and the Koran and in one way or another that there is this one life in the world and it is good. Well, why do things so often appear not to be good? Why is there so much pain and cruelty and injustice, um, so much hurt and suffering, which tends to wear on somebody's positive attitude? You can perhaps remember times that you were more or less positive and then decided you were just being naive. What you needed to do was be more realistic and therefore more negative in your outlook and more negative in your expectation. I always find it curious that people define realism as negativity and and beyond positive, uh, a, a, a mocking sense of of uh, phony optimism and enthusiasm is just airy-fairy, blue-sky, wishful thinking. If you think positive, that's that's supposed to be wishful thinking, and negative uh, thinking is supposed to be realistic. 
uh, I've never quite understood that bias, except to say that, and this comes up a lot, people tend to use their fear, ironically, to feel safer. This is strangest of all psychologies, that the best way to feel safe is to always be afraid. Because if we allowed ourselves to feel safe, well, that'd be way too scary. And it's crazy, and it's backwards, and it's mixed up, and you got to spend a lot of time reflecting on it to catch yourself doing it again and again and again. The path to safety is not to feel increasingly afraid. That's just a vicious circle. <laughs> and whatever is our overall attitude, positive or negative or vacillating or somewhere in the middle, uh, because of the self-fulfilling nature of life, because of the laws of mind, the, the second hermetic law of correspondence or the law of attraction it's come to be called today, as above, so below, as within, so without, that life is a reflection of your consciousness, just as the material world is understood by metaphysicians to be a reflection of the spirit world. Though invisible and unseen, the spirit world, a metaphysician would argue, is real. The physical dense world is the world of illusion, or maya is the Sanskrit word for illusion or delusion, distortion on the physical plane. And of course, philosophers East, Middle East, and West have, have always challenged that idea. They say, well, the real world, if that's what you're going to call the material world, is impermanent. It's constantly changing, and everything man-made is in decay. Nature cycles and has its stage of dissolution, right? And if it's constantly changing and nothing really lasts, then how could it be real or true? From the earliest times, philosophers have set the test for reality, for truth. What is philosophy but a search for truth? What is spirituality but a search for truth? To, to consider that truth would have to be permanent. Truth has to be infinite, doesn't it? And eternal and unchanging what kind of truth is always changing see that's pretty important consideration so to the materialist this sounds crazy and backwards that we would find truth in the invisible and the unseen that which cannot be proved or verified materially and then refer to the material world as a reflection of the truth a reflection because it's impermanent, because it's in flux, because it's always changing. I love the line uh, Heraclitus or Heraclitus uh, said, no man ever steps in the same river twice. It's very deep. <laughs> Not the river, the idea. Very profound, right? Metaphor. Uh, it's 
why you can't go home again. You know that old idiom: you can never go home again. Well, it's not the same. It's all, <laughs> it's always different. In fact, sometimes when you do go home, you're surprised to find that as much of it is the same. Uh, but still, there is that constant change. So to have a positive attitude about change in general is very important. To see that change as growthful, as I say, all things working together for good, is a creative and growthful attitude that we should not only, I'm arguing, adopt or use to adapt, we can adopt and adapt here, uh, but I think to to lead the day with, to just always expect something good, where most other people might not be quite so positive, and find that that's in your interest. Again, because of the self-fulfilling nature of life, because just as the material world, I'm arguing, reflects the spiritual world, the material world is a reflection of our consciousness. And if you change your attitude, you change the world. Most people want to do it the other way. They want the world to change, and then they'll change their attitude, right? So if something positive or fortunate or beneficial happens, you drop your funky attitude and get with the program, say, oh, well, that's better now. I can be more positive. Well, what if you turned it around and just adapted an attitude or adopted an attitude of of just being positive and finding the the silver lining in every dark cloud, uh, finding the blessing in disguise, doing what you can to prove that maybe it is true that all things work together for good. Actually, that's only part of the phrase, isn't it? All things work for good for those who believe in God is the way that is usually phrased. Or a Christian would say all things work together for good for those who believe in Jesus. Uh, I would say for those who believe in goodness. All things work together for good for those who believe in goodness. And that's what God and the English language really means is good. Surprising to a lot of people to offer that out, but it really is that simple. The the association between God and good and devil and evil, just in terms of letters and words, is pretty clear, but not very many people point it out. These are just polarities. God and the devil, good and evil, Positive and negative, they're, they're, they're polarities, right? And so are we going to be a victim of the polarities in our lives? Sit around like a bump on a log, waiting for good things, hoping to harvest good things, and um, suffering the bad stuff as if we have no control and as if adopting a positive attitude I'm still confused about adopting and adapting here. <laughs> Adapt your behavior by adopting a, a positive attitude um, makes a difference. There is that self-fulfilling prophecy. You tend to 
go where you look and get what you expect and uh, reap what you sow and you know what you what you think about happens it's that simple what you think about happens is not always not perfectly it's a little complicated because we're not alone in this it's probably the the, the hardest part for people to get about the law of attraction or you reap what you sow is that you're not alone so that which is happening to you in your life is not purely your creation. Uh, just as what you manifest in your life affects other people, what they're manifesting in their lives affects you. So you're all co-creators. And yet, whether whether you see yourself as completely responsible for a situation you're in, or having co-created it or contributed to its creation, or maybe you're just convinced that in this case you were totally blindsided, you're an absolute victim, you didn't do anything to create or even contribute to creating this situation. Well, it doesn't matter in terms of your attitude. You can always have a positive attitude. You can lead with a positive attitude. This is what I mean by initiating your attitude or taking the attitude initiative. You see, even a response can be initiated if you have the right attitude. Many would argue, you know, that's a response. That's your reaction. A response is a reaction. Yeah, but there's a difference between a knee-jerk reflex and a well-reasoned even-tempered, let-me-consider-all-my-choices kind of a response. And that's the importance, it seems to me, of leading with attitude and of seeing your, your point of view, if you will, or your perspective between stimulus and response as being a matter of, of attitude. It's a, it's a great word. Now, if you look up the word attitude in the dictionary, you'll get words like disposition or orientation. I checked uh, Wikipedia this morning just for kicks. I like wikis, the whole idea of everybody contributing and sort of hashing it out. (laughs) It's very democratic. So I thought, well, let's see what Wikipedia has to say as a definition for uh, for attitude, and they called it a hypothetical construct, right? Like attitude is uh, is not your thoughts, although it includes your thoughts. It's about has to do with the way you think. Uh, it's not limited to emotional feelings, although you know attitude has to be considered as bearing upon both the way you think and the way you feel and of course to complete the trinity there there would have to be a role for attitude in your speech and your behavior so mentally emotionally and physically attitude plays a role it's interesting also to see um, the way attitude is used in uh, in everyday um, uh, English Oh, and there's the, uh, I wanted to mention before I get to that, yeah, just 
this idea of attitude in an airplane. You know, airplane pilots are interested not only in altitude, but also attitude. And I was a big fan of the uh, space shots when I was a kid in the 60s, and the, the Mercury and the Gemini missions, and finally Apollo when we went to the moon and, and landed there in 1969. That that was a big deal for me. And and I knew all the terminology, not all of it, but I knew a lot, a lot of the terminology. And, and with here, these astronauts, most of them jet pilots, talk about the attitude of the capsule. And attitude in flying is really a position that you take in three dimensions. Uh, the X, Y, and the Z axis in flying is called uh, roll, pitch, and yaw. Roll would be left and right. Um, pitch, I'm really not sure of this. Pitch would be sort of up and down, nose up, nose down. And uh, yaw would be the tendency, well, that's roll, and then yaw would be the tendency to go left and right. So however you lay it out, X, Y, and Z, roll, pitch, and yaw are the three dimensions of space. In describing the attitude, not the altitude, but the attitude of an airplane, or as I said, a space capsule. So there's another use of the word that will help maybe deepen our understanding of what we mean by attitude. But it is interesting in just colloquial language to hear the way the word is used, because uh, young people today will talk about Attitude, like it's always a bad thing. Like, uh, he gave me some attitude, or she's got an attitude, which is strange. I mean, if you say that, if you find yourself saying that, or somebody you care about saying that, um, you might want to consider bringing it up, or just reviewing, what does that mean? And it's I have a bunch of pet peeves about language, and and this is one of them. Um, you're talking about a positive attitude, a negative attitude. How about an apathetic attitude? You just don't care one way or the other. Or an aggressive attitude, or a hostile attitude, or a kind attitude. I mean, even beyond positive and negative, there are many descriptive terms. So if you say, well, they gave me attitude... What are you talking about? What kind of attitude? Um, let's develop our vocabulary. It's a means by which we express ourselves. I could care less is another one, another pet peeve of mine. I just don't understand why people say, I could care less. It's I could not care less. <laughs> if you want, the, the sarcasm is I couldn't care. I could not care less. Somehow, we've got a whole generation of people saying, I could care less. Well, that's not an insult. That doesn't say anything. Forgive me. <laughs> Another one of my pet peeves. So when we talk about attitude, somebody having an attitude, it, it, I guess the reference is that uh, if nothing further is said, what we're talking about is a kind of an arrogance if somebody has an attitude. 
it's an attitude of superiority. It's uh, an attitude of authority. But I, I just think it's lazy. So when we talk about attitude, what kind of attitude? And again, are we a victim of our attitudes, or are we going to consider what we're discussing here today and adopt a positive attitude and then adapt to that, (laughs) adapt to having a, a positive attitude, always finding something good to say? This is a challenge for most of us. You know, I, 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 I'm sometimes conflicted by my interest in politics and my interest in spirituality because politics, you have to constantly judge. Your attraction to politics comes from your need to judge and understand what's right and what's wrong. And then on <coughs> excuse me, the spiritual side of things, you have these admonitions not to be quite so judgmental. I mean, some things are important enough that you do have to judge. But we don't have to judge as much as we do. There's the rub when you hear these religious admonitions to judge not lest you be judged. Well, I'm sorry. There are times when you do have to judge things, but... I guess the whole point of that is not as often as we do. Let's try to be less judgmental. We were talking the other day about the ego's desire to uh, seek approval, to control, and to judge. There's a wisdom understanding that's that's primarily uh, what the ego does. And it's interesting because if you feel if you find people, whether it's yourself or others that you know well, who do one of those three to excess, they're probably doing the other two to excess. In any order, the need for approval, the need to control, or the need to judge. If it's excessive in one, it's probably going to be excessive in all three. And so to be exceedingly judgmental is to also have an exaggerated need for approval and an excessive need to control things. To be able to give up so much judgment. I mean, when did you decide you don't like broccoli? When you were five or six years old and you haven't tasted broccoli since? Uh... I've handed kids tomatoes out of a garden, and they go, oh, no, I don't like tomatoes. And I say, I know, this is, a di- this is different. And they go, no, I've had tomatoes. I don't like tomatoes. No, really, try it. It's different. And they eat it, and it's delicious. And they say, what is this thing? I said, well, this is a real tomato. What you've been getting in the grocery store, those are grown on factory farms. They're not real. And so you really did like a tomato, you just never had a real one. Our lives are full of that stuff. Early on, we make a decision. I like this, I don't like this. Right? Often either or, nothing in the middle. I like this, I don't, and then you live your whole life. 
based on these assumptions you made as a little kid, this attitude that you carry forward as a result of having, shall we say, prejudged or being prejudiced, because you made up your mind, you're going to carry this attitude with you. Try it. What, what if you just don't decide? Like today, I don't like broccoli. Right? Maybe a week from today, I try it and it tastes quite good, and I enjoy it. Right? Or maybe I decided all it needed was um, to be steamed instead of boiled, or I don't know, served with soy sauce instead of salt and butter, and suddenly your your whole interest awake. All of this is, again, do you see how we tend to play victim, helpless victim to this stuff, when in fact we could be in the present moment, be awake, be alert, and, and use that positive attitude, initiate that positive attitude about everything in your life. Just error on the side of something good will come from this conversation. Something good will come from solving this problem. Something good just might come from this horrible situation we find ourselves in. Right? You know that that story Ronald Reagan used to tell. They said it was a favorite, Ronald Reagan's favorite joke about about the uh, optimistic boy and the pessimistic boy and the and the the pony in the room full of horse manure and the kids digging through the horse manure and there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. That's that's the positive attitude we're talking about. There's got to be a pony in here someplace. There's, there's and and and. Oddly enough, because of the self-fulfilling nature of mind and heart, because we do indeed tend to harvest what we sow. Okay, it's it matters. It really matters. Let me share a couple of quotes with you, and then we'll go to the um, to the questions and comments that you may have for us. Let's see, what did I do with that screen? I thought I pulled up... I thought I pulled up another screen. I did. With quotes on it, but I don't know where it went. I must have closed it by accident. Um, Let's see. Give me a second to see if I can refine this. Because I thought it had a lot of very cool quotes on it. And then I'll be able to share some of them with you. And it may stimulate some uh, conversation here when we go to the telephones and the uh, text questions. There's a few. A positive attitude may not solve all your problems, but it will annoy enough people to make it worth the effort. Well, (laughs) little tongue-in-cheek sarcasm there from some guy named uh, Herb Albright. Um, Attitudes are contagious. Are yours worth catching? That's sort of nice. I like that. Um, From the College Blue Book, Anthony D'Angelo said, Wherever you go, no matter what the weather, 
always bring your own sunshine. Oscar Wilde, if you don't get everything you want, think of the things you don't get that you don't want. There you go. (laughs) All of the things that could have happened but didn't. Uh, Voltaire, of all people, said, Life is a shipwreck, but we must not forget to sing in the lifeboats. Positive attitude. Here's an old Persian saying, I had the blues. Isn't that interesting? The blues in Persia. I had the blues because I liked, no, I had the blues because I had no shoes until upon the street I met a man who had no feet. I think that's probably a loose translation. It's probably I was sad because I had no shoes until I met a man who had no feet. See, sort of embarrassing you into getting your attitude straight. Here's another. If you don't think every day is a good day, try missing one. All right, I like that. As some guy named Cabot Robert hears any... Gautlier, or Gautlier. She said, it's so hard when I have to, and so easy when I want to. So if you have to, then want to. The former vice president under LBJ, Hubert Humphrey, said, oh, my friend, it's not what they take away from you that counts. It's what you do with what you have left. Very profound. Winston Churchill, attitude is a little thing that makes a big difference. A couple of more. Here's an anonymous one. Every day may not be good, but there's something good in every day. There's a quotation from a Robert Brault. He said, there are exactly as many special occasions in life as we choose to celebrate. One of my favorite and most quotable people, Ralph Waldo Emerson, said, The sun shines and warms and lights us, and we have no curiosity to know why this is so. But we ask the reason of all evil, of pain and hunger and mosquitoes and silly people, Yeah. When good stuff happens, we don't say, why? Why is this happening to me? Only when the bad stuff happens. George Santayana said, to be interested in the changing seasons is a happier state of mind than to be hopelessly in love with spring. And Francesca Riegler said, happiness is an attitude we either make ourselves miserable or happy and strong. The amount of work is the same. I think that quote was also in my uh, in my newsletter this week, only attributed to somebody else. So there you go. Let's uh, um, go to the, the questions first. Uh, those of you with text questions, if you want to Click on the little tab on the left side of the web page in front of you. It says Ask a Question. You can type in the box, include your name and city, and uh, we'll be able to say hi to you. 
And if you're on the telephone and you have a question or a comment, star two will let me know that you're in the queue and uh, I can bring you online one at a time that way. First of all, from Canoga Park, Phil Jaffe is with us today, and he says, um, I've got the development of my Ageless Wisdom Ning page all started. Uh, 41 photos, two videos, 17 blogs, but no music or discussion yet. Don't forget on Zorap. Uh, let's see. Got three friends, and I'm trying to get a fourth friend, and he's just talking about playing around with this new site. I'm glad Phil's reminded me of this to mention to you guys that as of just a few weeks ago, we've been able to set up our own social net, very much like Facebook. I still do Facebook because there's so many people there. Um in just a few months, I have over 700 friends, and it's a, a great way to promote these classes. But I thought, wouldn't it be nice if we could set up our own Facebook, even if it's much uh, smaller, for my private clients, for my students, um, past students and current students, for people who participate, in this Sunday webinar, the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School, or listen to it as a as a podcast, wouldn't it be cool if we had our own social net site? So we do. And um, the address is very similar to my primary website, which is theagelesswisdom.com. The T-H-E is part of the address. It's the W's dot theagelesswisdom.com. And to go to the social net, it's similar, but you add N-I-N-G. So it's theagelesswisdom.ning, and like Nancy, I-N-G, dot com. Theagelesswisdom.ning.com. Of course, all this stuff is free, thanks to our Focus Passion Project. And thanks again to those of you who subscribe to the premium podcast over there for 99 cents you're making all of this possible so it's absolutely free go to theagelesswisdom.ning.com register um, to eliminate spam I'll have to approve that application and um, nothing personal we just that's the only way to keep the automated spam uh, hackers off the site so I'll approve it as quickly as I can. That's a one-time deal. And then you'll have a username, and a, which is your email address, and a password that you choose and can come in any time. And like Phil says, you can post photos. Uh, you'll have your own page to do that. And then there's a main page as well that everybody sees. Um, there's all kinds of stuff. Post videos, post JPEGs. Uh, there are music players on one on the main page, and there's one on your page as well. Once you sign in and log in, and um, what else? Messages that you can send and and hook up with some people as friends, and and I can communicate with everybody on that site as well. So it takes a little while to get to know 
to play around with it, but I'd love for you to at least register if you haven't already. Sign in. Sign up and then sign in. And uh, after this event on Sundays, a bunch of us go over there and do a little text chat. And that's also by way of telling you that in the coming weeks, I'm going to make an announcement about a Thursday night version of this with video. I'm going to continue to do this Sunday webinar live and by podcast, but we're going to add a kind of a discussion group, a video conference, where everybody with their webcams can get up side by side. We'll see all the faces like a classroom and have a Q&A or discussion on all matters, metaphysic and spiritual, personal development, spiritual development. And I'll do a little teaching, but so will you. And um, I'm looking forward to doing that. But it's going to take a couple of weeks to set up. And uh, so we're still playing around with it, a few of us. And I'll let you know more in the future. If you want to be a part of the initial setup or if you want to know more about the the upcoming, the still pending video conference we're going to do on Thursday nights. I think I'm going to do that at 6.30 California time, which would be 9.30 Eastern time. Um, send me an email, just my initials, mb at theagelesswisdom.com, and I'll fill you in. I'll let you know about this, how to do it. Video conferencing like Skype, but everybody's pictures will be up there. And even if you don't have a webcam, they're awfully cheap. They're like, they're down to 25, 30 bucks. So, hope you can meet us after this event today. If you're listening live, we'll, we'll go to theagelesswisdom.ning.com. Again, log in. If you, if you haven't signed in, do that first. Get signed up and registered. And then I'll approve it as quickly as I can this morning. Come back in, log in, and we'll meet in chat. And then some of us, I think, will play around with this video conference, too. Okay? So thanks for reminding me about all of that, Phil. Carol Postel in La Habra says, hello. Hi again. Hello, Michael, Doreen. Hi, Carol. Um, let's see. Who else we have? In Los Osos. I'm not sure how to pronounce your last name, Philip. Colaprit? Colapre? No, no. But Philip in Los Osos says, Hi, Michael. How would you feel about an inner and positive philosophy about our life? How would you feel about an inner and positive philosophy about our life? Well, I'm not sure what you're asking me there. Um, I mean, that's what all this stuff is about, is philosophy. And philosophy speaks to the personal or inner experience. And I'm just making a case for the importance of a positive attitude. So I'm in favor of it. <laughs> Life itself, I guess, I'm in favor of it. In Tucson, Arizona, Laura Hatch is with us. And she says, Aloha, Michael. I think this is where Scientology as a good concept of removing yourself from society for a period of time to allow you to deprogram yourself of destructive thinking. Great class, as always. Peace and love to you and Doreen. Well, 
that may be. Let me hasten to add, however, that that certainly is not exclusive uh, to Scientology. The idea of uh, being, um, oh, uh, going on a pilgrimage. Um, I mean, in the, in Islam, you're expected to to attend the Hajj once a year. Uh, a pilgrimage. There are Catholic pilgrimages. There's a a famous walk through Spain and and parts of Europe that that uh, Catholics and other Christians will often do as a pilgrimage, again a a way of breaking out of the routine of life. Uh, the Native American uh, um, so-called Indian people of the Americas had their vision quest and and shaman and medicine men and medicine women. Uh, often promote the idea of going away and going on vacation and doing a, if not a vision quest, just in a low-stimulus environment, um, you can get clear-headed. That's what a meditation is, of course, but to make it several days or even a couple of weeks, I remember the backpacking I did, it would, it would always take at least two days of walking, sometimes a little more, with no media, no TV, no radio, no iPods or MP3 players of any kind, before my mind would stop racing, before I would stop uh, all of the thinking, the monkey mind of ideas competing for attention. It's really a fascinating experience, especially if you backpack alone. It's not really a good idea, I suppose, from a safety point of view. I shouldn't really encourage anybody to go backpacking alone, but, my Lord, the benefits are outrageous. We could... Because as those thoughts begin to fall away, and a lot of them you find are commercial jingles. You know, by the second day, your normal thought train has been replaced by an outpouring or a purging of all of this crap. All these singing jingles from TV commercials start pouring out of your head. And I always knew I was getting near the end on the second or third day when uh, Christmas songs would be in my head. <laughs> and I'm wa walking down some dusty trail in the Sierras in July or August, and I've got jingle bells in my head. And then, again, somewhere around noon on the third day, for me, it would finally get quiet. And you could really hear the birds. And you noticed the sound of the wind in the trees. And you could hear your feet falling on the trail as you walked along. And all of your other senses then became more acute. You began to smell things that you hadn't smelled before. And notice that the sun feels different at this elevation. And the sky is a different kind of blue than it was when you were lower on the mountain. And Everything, everything begins to change. So 
So I'm a big proponent of that for sure, Laurel. I thank you for that. Robert in Irvine says, Aloha, Michael. Uh, excellent topic. So much of our perspective has been tainted and distorted by people and things we've absorbed through the years without even knowing it. Have a magical week of peace. Thank you, Robert. In Albuquerque, Diane says, Do you think a good attitude has an additional an additional benefit in that it nourishes the human spirit? Well, yeah, I think that's a nice way of saying it. Hadn't thought of it quite that way, but... Yeah, I mean... Uh, a, a, a positive attitude, after all, is a quality of love. And love is consciousness. And, you know, spirit manifesting as love, spirit manifesting as consciousness, is in and of itself a good thing. Awareness is a good thing. Again, we don't want to ignore or deny the negative aspects of reality, but to dwell upon them is to reinforce them. So to nourish the spirit, yeah, I think that's just love. That's just happiness. That's uh, a passion or a zest for living, looking forward to life, come what may, knowing that you have the equipment to deal with it. And the good stuff uh, is reward we can enjoy and luxuriate in, and the bad stuff we can learn from and be ever more elegant in the way in which we harvest the lesson or render the lesson from the negativity. Yeah, nicely said. Positive attitude nourishes the human spirit. I like that. In Los Angeles, Patricia is here today and says, Hello, Michael. I really needed to hear this topic. I know now what I need to do. I have to get up the courage to do it, and I'm glad that um, you have a show that helps me. Bless you. Well, thank you, Patricia. And by the way, I love that picture you put on the Ning site. Uh, of you in uh, E.L. Valley there with your peace t-shirt on. I thought that was a really cool photo. We also have uh, Dr. Kev in Amsterdam, the real Amsterdam. And uh, hello, Dr. Kev. Aloha. He says, never disappointed when I listen. Looking forward to the video conferencing on Thursday evening which uh, it's a good thing you're a night owl, Kev, because I think it's like uh, uh, 2 o'clock in the morning, Greenwich, or 2.30. I think 6.30 Pacific is 2.30 Greenwich. But if you're a night owl, and I think you probably are, then uh, you'll probably love that. We'd like to have you there, too. Let's see who's on the phone. I don't see hands raised. The, uh, Robert has his hand raised. Let's see if we can bring Robert in for a minute. Hi, Robert. You're on with Michael Benner. Hello, Hello Michael. How you Hello, doing? Uh, better and better, thanks. Outstanding. Glad you guys uh, dodged that big uh, bullet this weekend. Yeah, it turned out to be not any bullet at all, but, you know, um, maybe it's Pearl Harbor 
and maybe it's just the other natural disasters out here, volcanoes and such, but Hawaiians have the best attitude about disaster preparedness and emergency management. I didn't hear anybody complaining. They all saw it as a a good opportunity for an exercise, so everybody headed for higher ground. Uh, did you hear a I heard it was going to be much bigger in Japan, but I haven't heard the news today. Have they had any tsunami? There, what news I've seen is that it barely brushed the Asian continents. That's that's one of the words I saw in the uh, the news wires. That it, it, uh, they're calling it a non-event. Well, and uh, seismologists are already circling the wagons to defend their having called the tsunami alert in the first place, but I really don't think they have anything to defend better safe than sorry. Yeah, that's exactly my feeling, better safe than sorry. And Now we can turn our attention to, uh, as a nation, whatever we can do to help the people of Chile, because that was, uh, my God, the amount of energy released, what did they say, 900 times stronger than the earthquake in Haiti? Something like that, and... Uh, I think the only thing that saved them was the low population center and the fact that uh, because they have such a history, their billing codes are rigorous. Yep. Um, and it was, I think they said it was a deeper earthquake, um, just, a, just a different type of event. Yeah. Anyway, uh, you know, I wonder if I might say one word real quick about judgment, since you were talking about judgment uh, there for a second. Sure. A very vexing topic and a troublesome uh concept to wrestle with, especially the the quote you cited from from Jesus Christ, judge not lest you be judged for the measure you give will be the measure you get. And I think there's two points to remember that Jesus, like the Buddha, was part of an avataric wave, a great wave of energy that washed over the earth and manifested as all these great teachers. And their theme was almost identical uh, between Buddha and Jesus. That was, you know, watch your mind, because what you think is is what's what you're going to become, and uh, Jesus uh, was very hip to the fact that when we do judge, uh, the first one that we condition with our condemnation is our own being. There you go. Uh, we're basically setting up a dialogue between ourselves and the universe, and telling it what the rules are going to be, what <laughs> what rules we will adopt and adhere to. You know, the measure you get will be the measure you get. So in our condemnation. Say you and I, as members of society and probably everybody else we know, has to has to agree upon the fact that child murder will be unacceptable. As an example, that's an easy one. That's an easy one, and I use that example because there are adults where we might have a problem coming to that conclusion. We might have trouble agreeing upon, like Hitler, Pol Pot, some of these other despotic mass murders. We might have trouble agreeing upon that, but when it comes to children. We're all pretty much on the same page. Right. Okay. We have to agree that that's not going to be acceptable. We're not going to condone it. Now, judging, do we make that event, that single event, assuming it is one in the life of the criminal, the sole definition? Does that become the defining point of what that person is and what they're going to become? Well, if we listen to the enlightened ones in the great mind of the cosmos, no. That's the answer. Now, as human beings, i got to admit, I have trouble with that. I fail often. Unconditional forgiveness? 
Yeah, unconditional forgiveness when it comes to and I could you know I could cite a number of of people who who committed such atrocities right here in Southern California. Uh, it's it's really uh, it's a leap. It's an exercise. You got to dig deep um, to do that. But um, I think there is something important in remembering that if we're judging, if we're making that one act or or any act by any person the defining measure then we're then we're acting in a judgment that's going to prove destructive now again in the case of in, ca- in the case of the child murder or the mass murder i'm still on the fence uh, i i i you know i i'm not afraid to admit uh, after 35 40 years of doing this stuff um that i fail i fall off the horse you know, but my intention is always to get back on and, and, and resume, you know, digging within myself um, to see if I can't come to some uh, peace with it. But uh, it's not easy. Of course not. And I think that uh, you're able to admit um, that you're not perfect uh, is another way of saying that I'm a human being. And... I mean, even Christ was tempted. This is something that one of my teachers a few years ago made very clear to me, is that it seems when we incarnate into a body and we get an ego that identifies with that separated mortal body, um, it's often going to block our access to this higher self. And it's going to distract us from identifying with the non-judgmental self and lobby us to judge. And so we are. I, I just, I think admitting it is a sign of 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 growth as well. As long as we're in a form, you know, if, if Christ is tempted, then then certainly you and I are going to be tempted. I, I just think it's a high bar that we want to try to move toward because as I know you're aware of Robert, I've heard you say it in different ways, is that the judging we do of others really reveals us. Exactly. If we know that then the judgment I think is less of a sin. I hate to use even the word sin. It's less of an error. The consequences are less severe. Uh, we're learning the lesson better and better by saying, you know, my difficulty forgiving this person says more about me than them. Well, then maybe that's why we need to be confused and and, and why we're tempted to judge. And I think ultimately it's just another way we deal with the fear and anxiety in our lives. If I stop judging, I feel I'm going to be in greater danger. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, well. You know, <laughs> you could spend hours just talking about this one. Um, yeah, <laughs> especially especially the aspect you mentioned of, of identification with the body, man. You know, we, we didn't talk about homeostasis, but we could talk about homeostasis until the cows come home. It's the the, the reason the yogis and the the adepts have said have, have pointed us toward practice that tends to produce 
a disidentification with the body-mind is precisely because of this thing called homeostasis, which favors the survival of the organism and fosters a nice environment for raising children, but plays havoc with consciousness when we're identified with it. Yeah, yeah. Just the tendency to be comfortable and they... It's not the comfort zone, really. It's the familiarity zone. That's Stable sameness, yeah. Yeah, yeah, to do what we've always done because that's the way we've always done it. It's a false sense of security. But, uh, yeah, you know, I, I first learned that not in philosophy but in advertising. They taught me in my very, <laughs> my very first marketing class in college that you have to upset people's sense of well-being. You have to create a need and convince them that you may think you're safe and happy, but you're not. You really need this product. And, by God, if we look at what's happened with uh, prescription drug advertising on TV, oh, my Lord, which 10 years ago you never saw. And now they're training us. They're not just educating us in the name of these drugs. They're training us to develop the symptoms. And lo and behold, they just happen to have the very solution for the symptom. They just trained you to manifest. Yeah, they they took away the cigarette and the hard liquor advertising, and they gave us prescription drugs. <laughs> right, even heavier. Yeah. What a trade-off. Much more destructive. Robert, thank you for uh, being with us today and calling in. I appreciate it. Take care. You All too. Right. Aloha. And... Uh, this is where I hung up on the whole thing last time, so let me make sure I don't do that. I think I can just put Robert back on hold. So uh, I don't see any other hands raised. Let me hit refresh here. I have to remember to hit refresh. I don't see any other hands raised. And let me go back to the Q&A and see if we have any other questions that have come in since Dr. Kev. And apparently not. I've got about uh, nine or ten minutes after the top of the hour, so let's do a visualization exercise, a guided meditation, on this topic of attitude, and uh, then we'll put the ribbons on it, okay? So get comfortable if this is a good time for you, whether you're listening live or by replay. I want to remind you that any podcast directory, all the big ones, has this program in it. You can go to the iTunes store, Podcast Alley, Podfeed Net, uh, Podcast Pickle, just about any of the uh, big podcast directories, and uh, you can subscribe at those sites. You can also, in most cases, listen streaming on those sites. Just all a podcast is, if you're unfamiliar with the term, is an automatic download. Once you subscribe, each week's program is downloaded automatically into what's called an aggregator or a pod catcher. And iTunes does that. There's other programs that do that as well. And uh, so it's your choice. If you have a portable mp3 player an ipod or some other device that you want to take with you then download it that's by far the 
the coolest approach, but you can always listen streaming on any of these sites that I mentioned. And also my website, uh, you can listen streaming or download it manually from theagelesswisdom.com. All right. Theagelesswisdom.com. Click on homepage to come into the website and then look for web teleconferences and you see the whole archive there. So, you're comfortable, you're sitting straight, not rigid, but nicely balanced, shoulders back, and inhale slowly through your nose, a nice, big, full, deep breath, pause for a moment as you peek, and then as you exhale, now just as slowly, through the nose or the mouth. Feel the letting go and go beyond where you'd normally stop in exhaling all the way out and then do it again. As slowly as you can, inhale through the nose, hold for a moment as you peek, and exhale just as slowly to create a nice, even rhythm. As you become more and more relaxed, as you become less tense and feel safer, you'll be able to slow your breathing even more. It's a kind of a built-in biofeedback device. If you feel like rushing in the inhalation or the exhalation, like hurry up and finish, That's anxiety lying to you. You have lots of time. And so after three or four nice, slow, deep breaths, I'd like to suggest that you put your attention on the bottom of your nose and spend another minute or so simply watching your breath entering and leaving your body at this fixed point on the bottom of your nose, the nostrils, simply witnessing your body breathing itself all by itself. And suggest to yourself that you're interested, you're fascinated even at the freedom that's provided by all of these responses happening automatically your breathing, your digestion of food your body repairing and replacing cells fighting disease, maintaining body temperature and blood pressure and a thousand and one other responses all handled for you freeing your awareness to pay attention, in this case, to the singularity of breath, the in-breath and the out-breath. At that very point where breath enters and leaves the body,
And then scan your body with your awareness. Move that awareness from the bottom of your nose down through the center of your being, creating and sensing a letting go feeling all the way to the tips of your toes. And slowly back again. Feeling a letting go feeling wherever you discover stress and tension. And bring your awareness all the way up past your shoulders through the neck. Feel the neck and shoulders relaxing into your head. And place that awareness on the space around your ears. And feel your ears sag or droop a little bit as you relax the scalp. It's sometimes remarkable how much tension we carry in the scalp. And we don't even realize it until we feel the subtle drooping or sagging of the space around our ears as we relax the scalp. Further, tell yourself that you feel warm and then pause to feel how wonderful it feels to be warm. And tell yourself that you're safe Reflect for just a moment on how it feels in your body to be safe. And now I'd like you to raise that awareness from the space around your ears to the Ajna Center in the middle of the forehead where we where we focused last week. And you're going to have to tune the instrument. You're going to have to move your awareness slightly up and down, back and forth, left and right, in and out, until you can intuitively sense where your ajna is in the middle of the forehead. For some people, it's not only in the between the brows in terms of left and right, but in terms of up and down. It's lower in the forehead than, than others who would sense it still in the middle of the forehead in terms of left and right between the brows, but but above the line of the eyebrow, more in the center of the forehead. And yet, I want you to find your frame of reference. So when I say to you, tune the instrument, like tuning a guitar or a violin, a little sharp, a little flat, little too tight, a little too loose, find that middle spot. Simply through your intuition and what feels right for you. 
there is a center. The sixth of seven chakras is the Ajna center. And it is the point of integration for the three lower worlds. That means it is a point of integration for your mental, emotional, and physical self. And so it is from the Ajna center and the center of your forehead as you determine its position to be, trusting your intuition, that you allow your focus to settle. Quieting the mind, calming the emotional nature, And experience the stillness in a body that does not move and has chosen for a matter of moments or minutes to be silent. And thus you integrate the mental, emotional, and physical nature from this position of control, if you will, like the control room for the egoic self. Standing above you is your higher self, your soul or solar self, which has projected or extended itself into form but at the same time still stands above you, free of form. And beyond that, on still higher planes, the monad, the father aspect, divine will, purpose, and power, that to which we can only aspire, less a goal than the direction. Call it a goal if you wish. But it is less about attaining than moving toward. And so here you sit with all that is thought to be spiritual above you, behind you, all around you, enveloping you, your own soul or higher self standing, in a sense, metaphorically above you, but also extended within you as you maintain this beautiful and gentle focus in the center of your forehead, having integrated the small self, the little will, the mental, emotional, and physical characteristics. And it is here that you adjust your attitude. If the controls 
for integrating the self and aligning the self with your own higher sense of self and the no-self or no-thing that ultimately contains the one life as inadequate as contains is, forgive me. (laughs) It's this gentle focus in the center of the forehead where we adjust our attitude. Where you look forward out into the world at your later todays and tomorrows at what most people see as a stream of events, circumstances, and relationships coming at them. But as a student, you instead see yourself walking forward, moving forward into these multifaceted opportunities with a positive attitude, a willingness to receive without any concern about deserving or meriting the fruits and the blessings of life, you walk forward consciously, deliberately, gently, willing to receive all the goodness in life. But just as willing to receive unconditionally the rest of life, free from judgment, at least to the best of your ability, knowing that there's got to be a, even in the worst situations, even in the worst problems, challenges, and and adversities, there's got to be a pony in there someplace. There's got to be some lesson, some good has to come out of this. With a negative attitude, that's not true. If you approach with a negative attitude and the false belief that you'll be protected by expecting the worst, all you'll do is tend to generate the worst. And if anything good does come out of it, it'll certainly be the long way around. But face your fear. Move directly into the darkness and the light as you move forward in your life, knowing that the good is good and that which does not appear to be good needs a little refinement, that's all. That the good is good and and yours to take, a blessing, Embrace it, harvest it, keep it, it's yours. Relish it, luxuriate in it. And rather than seeing that which is not obviously good as bad, see it as opportunity, challenge, adversity, something in need of refinement. Not a negative to be killed or destroyed, but a situation that has something redeeming in it. What if every problem, every challenge, 
every hurt, every bit of torment, all suffering, represents an opportunity to learn. With that kind of an attitude, we could, it seems pretty clear, could be much more elegant in the way in which we find and save that which merits redemption in this otherwise negative situation. Something good in there. What if there always was some silver lining in that dark cloud, some some blessing in disguise? What if? How would you know that the wisdom is correct in suggesting that whether a parent or not, all things work together for good, provided you have an understanding of that process. And say to yourself, I can handle that. I am this. Silently and internally, affirm and confirm, I am an agent for change. I am a spiritual being. I am built for this. I can handle this and more. And I may make mistakes. In fact, it's pretty likely I will. But I can learn from those mistakes and avoid making them in the future. I will no doubt graduate to a higher quality of mistake. I'll continue to err on a different plane, but I'll learn from that as well and continue up the path. And as I get better and better, I can accelerate the whole process with grace and elegance. Being the consciousness that creates order out of chaos. Say to yourself, I am the soul. Mm-hmm.